This is Blazing Business Trails. My name is Sarah Paul and we'll be discussing the challenges and issues for leaders in the professional, legal, real estate, recruitment and educational services. And my name is Corvin Dahari. Each week we'll invite industry experts, analysts and people from the business services sector onto our podcast to get their insights, perspectives and learnings. Well, we're back again, Kelly. Today you have got Ishmael and Shania joining us. Welcome, Ishmael and Shania. Thank you, Sarah. Excited to be on. So, Ishmael, uh, innovation is close to becoming a phrase easily tossed around by um, by executives. The the term digital transformation gets thrown about. Can you put some re- real meaning behind that? I mean, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for Capita? Yeah. So, um, innovation is... Uh, basically the development of ideas of doing things differently. Uh, And as I see it, it results in new products, new services, things done more effectively. Um, If I can bring it to life, right? So if you think about uh, sequencing the first human genome, right? It roughly cost $3 billion. There was huge teams of scientists. I'm sure we all read about it or heard about it. It occurred in the year 2000. And it was as a result of a 15-year government effort. Now, you could have said, okay, we've now sequenced the human genome. We're all good. Or, of course, what happened is people tried to innovate that process to the point where some labs today can sequence the human genome for less than $500. And the costs will fall to less than $5 in less than a decade. For me, that's a great example of what innovation looks like uh, in real life. Okay, so I mean, Shanir, I mean, does innovation always have to be big on a big scale for big companies? Do you feel? Um, honestly, I I don't think it has to be big. Um, if if I think about the word innovation at Salesforce, we we definitely use innovation a lot. Um, but at Salesforce, we tend to differentiate it between. Um, two types of innovation, so disruptive and continuous. Um, and in my opinion, it's it's really where it's continuous innovation, where you're looking at, you know, just constantly changing certain processes. It doesn't have to be a big bang. It's how do you sort of keep the same processes, but with a different output. So for me, really, innovation will always come down to what is the purpose, right? What are you trying to achieve? Mm. And to Ishmael's point, it really, it, it really doesn't have to be big or small it's it's what is the objective what are you trying to get get to in the end yeah and you were talking about genomes uh, Ishmael really which may feel complex to some people would you say innovation is is a complex topic would you say no I don't think I mean I think doing innovation can be complex because it requires people to think differently to work together differently maybe to be compensated differently it requires change to do things in a different ways. Maybe it requires a different team setup, a more diverse team is, is one of the things that encourages innovation. But innovation itself could be can be quite simple. I mean, you know, we and, and, and this time of COVID has driven so much simple innovation, if you like. So, you know, if I think about Capita and we've been talking about, you know, we do call center work, we've been talking about having people work from home in call centers forever. And there's been a hundred reasons why it can't happen. You know, there's uh, data, there's technology, clients don't want to do it. People don't want to work from home. 
And then COVID happens. And suddenly everybody gets really innovative and start thinking, how do we get people working from home? And 20,000 people are working from home in three weeks. Yeah. And, and so you know, it can be something as simple as you used to work here and now you work there, but you've had to think about how you do things differently. Yeah, and especially marketing. I'm, I'm in marketing and you have to really change uh, what format you're using, your tactics. Yeah. So we have to go very much on the digital scale as well. So, yeah, yeah good point. I was just going to add to what Ishmael was talking about, you know, the uh, really incredible shift that Capita made in such a small amount of time, right? A, a huge amount of contact centers sort of all working from home. But if we talk about innovation, so, you know, Ishmael and I have been talking about how we take what Capita do really, really well, which is contact centers and outsourcing to the next level. So it's, it's not new in the sense that it's a brand new idea of contact center in a box or experience in a box, but actually it's still innovative enough for Capita to look at how do they sort of build that as a standard approach that in the future, if we're faced with a similar issue that, that, you know, we can overcome it quickly. So I guess there's a couple of types of innovation, but maybe we can just double down on this one, Ishmael. Yeah. Can you do innovation in isolation or is it a necessity in today's world to stay ahead of your competition and be a thought leader in that, in any given space, right? So can, you, yeah. you can't do it in isolation, I guess, is, no, is my I, question. I, I, I think you touch on a really important point, which is actually if you look back at the history of business, consistency, stability, safe pair of hands, if I can use that term, used to be a key criteria for successful businesses. And businesses used to be at the top of their game for long periods of time. And if you look at, I think, the S&P index and the companies on average used to be on there, I don't remember exactly, but let's say it's 50 to 60 years on average, used to be one of the top 500 companies in the US uh, S&P 500. Now, if you look at when a company uh, or how long a company stayed at the top of their game, it's 15 years or so, right? It's a short, short period of time, which means if a company needs to be continue to be successful, it needs to reinvent itself. And to reinvent itself, it needs to innovate. So innovation suddenly becomes a critical component of a company staying in business, whereas in the past, you, it might have felt optional. Now it's very different. You need to think differently, do things differently, just to stay in business. And does you know? Do you does everybody need a Steve Jobs, you know, or Elon Musk? I mean, th- these guys are visionaries, right? They're they're ahead of the game. But to be an innovator, to be that C-suite innovator, or drive innovation, do you have to be a maverick like those guys, or you just got to have that vision to take your company forward? I think I think what Steve Jobs and Elon Musk have shown us is key components of what you need to create innovation. Um, You know, if you think about what Elon Musk has done with SpaceX and how he's competed and beaten the NASA's and the Boeing's at their own game in, you know, creating these reusable space rockets, that is this role modeling how to think outside of the box, you know, put something in space and then bring it back and land it and reuse it. I mean, you know, the whole industry laughed at him at that time. So I think I think their role model, um, what is needed for leadership in the innovation space. But I think actually what we're seeing is innovation 
at all sorts of levels. Uh, and it doesn't need an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs to do that. I mean, as I think about um, some of the things, again, I keep going, going back to COVID and you just have to walk down the high street and look at how people are innovating to stay in business, how they're innovating to talk to one another while they're trying to do social distancing. Um, you know, there's little things like local councils in Spain I was reading about creating um, apps where beachgoers can book their spot on the beach in advance. So when they get there, they know it'll be socially distanced, it'll be available and all the rest of it. Now, you know, that might not seem like a big deal. Every bit of, you know, the app is available today. The idea of booking something is not a new thing. But the combination of an app for a beach in Spain during COVID is an innovative thing. So I think I think it's it's available everywhere. And I think, you know, if anything, this pandemic period has fast forwarded this idea of innovation becoming business as usual. So Shanibra, let's bring you back in here. And, you know, Salesforce is an innovative company and we help organizations transform. How are we, in your mind, helping Ishmael and companies similar to Capita really transform their business and innovate? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a good question, Kali. You know, I earlier I talked about how we look at what is the traditional business of Capita and taking it to the next level, right? It's it's not that difficult to do, um, but with a change of process and a little bit of technology, you know, you just sort of start to look at things like experience in a box. But one really good example, I hope Ishmael doesn't mind me talking about another company, but um, I worked with East Sussex during my time at Salesforce early on. And what I like about East Sussex is that um, they looked to really transform the citizen service in a different way. And it's a way that nobody's really ever thought of. So the, the, the challenge that they brought to us is very simple, right? We have potholes, we give out 1.5 million a year. And how do we really reduce that, right? And we started to look at technology, we looked at people. Um, and within a year, you know, they implemented a fantastic new approach that meant that they were leading in the councils and leading with citizen services. Now, I, I tell you what, it is really interesting to think about uh, grass cutting and how Salesforce can help automate that process. Um, but this goes back to what Ishmael was thinking, saying earlier, it's thinking outside of the box. How can we be more, a little bit more creative with these organizations, right? Yeah. And actually on that topic, I am the proud owner of one of your books, Ishmael. And uh, it's it. I've only just started reading. I can't quote everything in your book, I have to be honest. Thank but you, uh, for Thank those you listening... Support. <laughs> There's a bit of a plug here, yeah, but for those listening, it's um, how large companies can see the future and rethink innovation from incremental to exponential. And uh, you've joined forces with Vivek uh, Wadiwa uh, on this as well, and Alex Salkiva um, on this as well. So why did you home in particularly on large companies as well? Yeah, so, so Vivek um, and I used to work together just over 20 years ago. He's now uh, teaching at Carnegie Mellon and Harvard. And Vivek had a point of view which said that innovation only comes from startups because the culture and the talent and the lack of incumbency creates an environment which allows innovation to happen. Now, I've spent my career 
with large organizations, Accenture, IBM, uh, Capita now. And I was of the view, actually, um, I don't think that is the case in, because what large organizations have is clients, they have networks, they have money, they have people, they have, you know, all sorts of um, stuff that the startups don't have. And eventually I got Vivek to agree to the point where he said, actually, we should probably document this because there's a lot of lessons learned that large organizations can take advantage of, especially now, you know, as we were talking with Kobe, especially now that large organizations have no choice. They have to innovate. Mm. And what we were saying is actually the advantage in scale and knowledge, the marketing machines, the brand, the data they have, the exposure they have, they should really be using that to disrupt the market and take a real competitive advantage from being a large organization. Now, there is things, you know, we came up with, you know, there's the five or six things you need to be successful. But actually, if they do that, the large organizations have a massive advantage in innovating. Would you say it's slower in large organizations? Well, I think, I mean, it's it's the culture of the organization that determines that. Because if I... If I look at part, part of Salesforce, um, I would say, regardless of how large you are, you are about as quick as a, an, any organization would be, right? Uh, and then you look at um, other large organizations who haven't moved with, you know, how the need for agility and so on, and, and they're not as quick, and it becomes a disadvantage because, you know, fast decision-making, failing fast, all these things that we talk about around innovation – does require a quite nimble, agile culture. And one of the disadvantages large organizations can potentially have is the bureaucracy and the levels of organization and so on that could slow it down. So how important is culture in innovation? Are the two coupled together? Can you have one without the other? No, actually, not. I, I don't think so, actually. That's a great question, Kobe. And I actually think that one of the five or six things, I think, that are key criteria to support innovation and culture is absolutely one of them. And culture, you know, can come across in, in different sorts of ways. Um, if, I, if, 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 you, if you look at, if I give you a couple of examples, if you think about the post-it note, right, the post-it note that we stick up, uh, that is actually, at the time, is a massive bit of innovation. And that came from the company 3M. And 3M actually... Uh, what they're famous for is the idea that in their organization, they get 15% of their time to try things, right? This is institutionalization of culture. Try things, fail it. If it gets successful, then it might be something we take into the business. As a result of which, actually, I think they have over 25,000 patents as a result of this work that they do. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that's one example of culture, um, you know, the, this whole idea of uh, Amazon Prime, which became, um, I think it's a $10 billion business right now, came from somebody in Amazon putting something in a suggestion box. But the cultural part of it was that that was picked up by Jeff Bezos himself, and he himself sponsored the activity to make that into a business. Yeah. And, so, and that's a cultural thing. Somebody reads it, somebody sponsors it. It's an important, you know, so, so yeah, culture COVID is absolutely critical to innovation. So Chanel, specifically, what have you done and what help have you got from Salesforce to help Capita and Ishmael innovate and drive that innovation agenda? Yeah, that's uh, that, that is a good question. I think if I think about Capita and, and like the biggest thing that, 
comes to mind in terms of if we start at culture and then I'll talk about how we've sort of helped uh, with Salesforce from an innovation perspective and helping Capita achieve that. Um, you know, it's really the vision that John Lewis, the Capita CEO, had um, three years ago when he came in. Um, and he really looked to uh, take Capita in a different direction. And, and it really was to lead with purpose. You know, what is Capita's purpose? And Capita's purpose was to enhance the lives of citizens um, and customers. And so we really start at that, Kali, and we take that back, right? Because if we think about Salesforce, you know, that is really what we're trying to cultivate as well. So it was very much of how do we bring Capita's vision of becoming closer to the citizens and customers um, and utilizing the power of the platform to be able to reach the, those people and to be able to do that, to get closer to their customers and delight their customers. And I think, I think that's really where we started. It started three years ago with what was the purpose and, and, and then how do we get to the innovation piece? Sure. And I think, uh, can, can, I, can I add to that? Could actually, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because one of the things that we talk about in the book is one of the key criteria for innovation is use of data. And for us in Capita, we've actually totally reinvented ourselves in how we go to market because of what Salesforce gives us in terms of the data that we never had and the insight we get from that. And, and to the point, and, and Shanina knows this, to the point where you know we had over 30 images of some sort of CRM, we now have a single image of Salesforce, which is the core, the heartbeat of how we work is the Salesforce engine. And that allows everybody to work in one particular way. But more importantly, it allows us to capture data and predict and be forensic about where we, where we allocate our resources. And, and as we in the book, we actually talk about you know, using data and insight to be able to drive strategy, to be able to drive resource allocation. And actually, this is exactly how we've implemented it at Capita, by using Salesforce to be able to do that. Is there a trigger, would you say, Shadir, when it comes to knowing when to innovate? Uh, are there any catalysts for innovation? Um, you know, I'm going to go from my personal experience where I... Uh, <laughs> And, and again, it's it's really about where is a company struggling or really looking to transform? And for me, for me personally, that has been the catalyst in everything that I've ever done in my career. Um, but then, you know, I started the podcast talking about how Salesforce looks at continuous innovation. So it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be that. But from my personal opinion and my personal point of view, that is how I see the catalyst for this. Yeah. And I was just wondering whether, Ismail, whether, you know, you, you spoke about data, whether that also is a good trigger, um, you know, if numbers yeah. or... or you know, well, actually, pipe is low, for example, you need to start innovating a bit more, maybe. Yeah, I, actually, I think, Sarah, I think we, we're in a golden moment of innovation. And mm -hmm. we, we are here because of what's happening with the emerging of technology. We have, we're here because of what's happening with demographics. We have, we're here because 3 billion more people are going to come online because they're going to get, going to get internet access. And, it, and, you know, all of those things and, you know, what's happening with the with the climate ar around the world and the longevity, all of these things are happening at a time where I don't think it's I, I just don't think it's an option. I just think there's massive of opportunity uh, 
for every organization to either do things differently or to bring something else to an organization. And, and, and you know, and, and if you think about it, Sarah, it's not just business. Mm. If you think about suddenly because of COVID, our kids are, you know, being taught from home and, you know, who, who and it's crazy, right? Because all the parents are going mad with kids hanging around. But the idea that you can deliver customized content to an individual, we've talked about forever. Uh, and I remember Sesame Street doing some work where using the online, they were working out how a child learns so they could create a very customized online uh, experience one-to-one with a child to make it more effective. Mm. So I think in every sector of industry or our lives, whether it's social or whatever it might be, you know, Peloton, what a thing, right? I know, yeah. What a thing, right? Uh, and who would have thought that you would get really excited? And I'm, I'm a new Peloton user, so... <laughs> I was going to ask that question. How many of us have Pelotons? Come on, let's I have Nordic that. track. I have Nordic track. I've got track, a Nordic, so Nordic track. Peloton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but the idea that we get excited about going sitting on our own in a spinning class with somebody doing the class from New York... But hang on, you get to go to other countries on some of these as well. You get to explore Hawaii. Um, I've been all over the world with with my Nordic track. (laughs) But you're right, gamification is a a great way to innovate. And uh, children learn from from TV. Um, I was watching uh, Minari the other day and the people, you know, the the grandmother that was in Minari, this, this, this film that's up for Oscars, and uh, she was learning how to speak English from from TV, for example. Incredible. And and then yeah, and computer games. My my boys are nine and eleven, and and they're very much into gaming. But there's my, Minecraft, which could be perceived as as being very creative and yeah. using their mind to build things. So you know, so there's lots of ways around. But do you think you need lots of budget to do it? I don't think so. I mean, I think if you are a large organization, you, I would focus on culture mm. to be the big trigger yeah. part rather than compensation. Yeah. Um, you, you might need budgets, depending on the industry you're in. If you're SpaceX, you need budget, right? But if you're mm. in some of the stuff that we're doing, uh, not necessarily. It's not necessarily a showstopper. Yeah. What about time, Shanir? Uh, well, Ashley, just on that, I, I, I really wanted you, uh, Ishmael, if you don't mind, to talk about um, Mick, CEO of Not Impossible Labs, mm. because, you know, he, he talks about how he's built this new business, um, which really looks uh, about creating things that do good socially. Um, and there are some instances where they create solutions that are open source and they don't charge for them. And then there are some instances where, you know, they see that they can um, get a profit out, out of a certain solution and put that money back into the business. So, uh, Ishmael, do you want to talk yeah, about it briefly? No, I'd, I'd, I'd really... to, yeah, I'd love to talk about Not Impossible and yeah. the connection with Salesforce because I met Mick at Dreamforce, the last physical Dreamforce, actually, that we had back in San Francisco. Yeah. And he, he was the opening presentation, uh, the exec track on the first day. And he walks in and there's a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, experienced, uh, cynical execs like myself sitting there as this guy walks in with a baseball cap, uh, dressed like basically like he just walked out of Texas. <laughs> and, he's, and he starts to tell the story about not impossible, which is everything is not impossible until it's possible. The minute before it's possible, it's not impossible. And how 
he wanted to create technology for social good. And he told this story, and I, I kid you not, he told this story where he basically, you know, they, they find one instance of an issue that can be solved by technology, and then he expands it to the rest of the world. And he told this story of this old guy, used to be a real world-class pianist, had got Parkinson's disease, couldn't play the piano anymore. And with his team, they worked out actually that um, they could create a little bit of technology which would stop his Parkinson's disease. Long story, and you'll have to, it's on the website and you can watch the video. So he goes to see this pianist and he says to him, look, I've got this thing, you put it around your arm, you can play the piano. And, he, and he, this guy starts crying. He said, no, no, I don't want to do that because just in case I can't, I don't want to lose my memories of how I used to play the piano. Anyway, he convinces him, this old guy, must be in his 80s, 90s. He puts this thing, stuff on, he starts playing the piano. And I tell you not, everybody's crying in this Dreamforce exec meeting, mm. right? We're all cynical people because this is technology changing this individual's life and the lives of so many. Yeah. Uh, and and Mick, Mick Ebeling, who, Ebeling, who runs Not Impossible, he's the CEO of Not Impossible. We'd actually then brought him over to the UK uh, and we've done some work with him and Shanira were there as well. He, he actually won the, humani- the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award in 2015. Wow. But, but, th- but what you get if you go, go, go on that website, and I'm sure he won't mind me giving him the plug, is two things. One is purpose-driven innovation. Yep. And this idea that innovation can be done, can be done with three people and a passion. Because that's mm-hmm. sort of how they go about doing this. But um, incredible, incredible role model for innovation. And actually, just on that, what I want to implement at Salesforce, if um, the leadership team will hear me out, <laughs> is uh, Mick's approach to failure, right? He talks about how companies and CEOs uh, applaud successes, but nobody gives a failure award, right? Um, I personally mm-hmm. think I should get a couple, but, you know. Um, no. But actually, his point is, the more you fail, you're on the verge of innovating something, right? So we'll t- we'll yeah. discuss yeah. your failures at another point, Shania, maybe right We're at a more appropriate <laughs> point. But <laughs> I know, <laughs> you, I you did set yourself up for fail, that particular so. uh, uh, rebuttal from me, but I just want to come back um, a little bit uh, back on topic, Ishmael. Capita spend a lot of time yeah. innovating what we see as citizens here in the UK in terms of services that are provided by the government, right? What have you seen change in the last 10, 11 months from the way our government are thinking about innovating and delivering services to us as citizens? And how far are we behind some of the other countries that are really, really innovating in this space? I know we touched on this topic yeah. as part of our briefing, but any insight you could share there that would be really interesting for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, we, yeah, we. I mean, we're lucky enough to get have access to cabinet office and to various departments, and I would say everything's changed. I think the expectation of the citizen has changed. The speed at which government feel they can get things done has changed and they've shown it during this process pandemic crisis um, and also a recognition that we are behind we are behind the rest of the world or not everybody but we used to be at the top of the united nations league table for how um, digital we were we're now six or seven and denmark at the top if you think about how some of the other governments 
uh, are dealing with this. And Denmark is one that I would talk about. Another one is uh, Estonia. Um, Estonia have gone even as far as creating an e-residency, which is it allows entrepreneurs from anywhere around the world to set up and run location-independent business. Uh, and for that, you know, um, you, you don't have citizenship rights, but you can do everything else from Estonia. Uh, and, you know, that, that thinking, that mindset is a shift for government, never mind how you provide service. And then when you talk about providing service, you know, Estonia is one of those where everything is silent. So you don't have to apply for a passport. You will get your passport when, you know, time comes for you to get a new passport. Or if you go in and you want to change your driving license, it will be like a concierge service. So while you're going to change your driving license, they will also tell you you might want to do this and you might want to do that, just like if you were going into your bank. And and that is the expectation of the citizen, right? And, and I think uh, some countries have... I mean, Estonia is a great example where they didn't have the baggage uh, and they created a brand new government. But other organizations, other, other governments rather, are creating brand new services and it's going to be driven by citizens saying, if I go on Amazon and this is a service I get, I can't go on HMRC and get a, a service which is substandard. And so I think that's going to drive lots of innovation in that space. So when, when we talk about innovation, when people think of innovation and best practices, who is it that can innovate? And these businesses need to keep going and keep the lights on. What can they do? And in particular, does innovation need to happen at the top? I think I think where we've seen where we've seen good practice though I mean you know we started off with does innovation have to be big and and I think you know it does not have to be big and it's not always called innovation but if you are a customer center uh, agent for O2 you can still innovate in terms of how you service that client and what's really important is your leaders allow you to do that. You've got an environment where you can empower yourself to make difference in terms of how you service your clients. So, you know, you don't necessarily need additional resources or time to be able to innovate. And so, because I agree with you, people have got to keep the light on. But even in those instances, I think uh, a cultural push towards empowerment, transparency of data, focus on the citizen or the, or the client will we'll create all sorts of initiatives and innovation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to sort of the whole culture and purpose, right? That you don't need money for that, but if you understand your leadership and your company's vision and what you're trying to achieve, like you can do that and empower yourself to do it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I, I presume you would agree that innovation would create growth as well, yeah? And but could you have be too innovative and grow too much? Do you think? Uh, um, I think you can be ahead of your time in terms of innovation. Mm. And I, I have very painful experiences, as I'm sure a lot of other people do, where during the dot com era, mm. we were positioning marketplaces and platforms, and everything you know fell on its face. <laughs> And uh, I, I remember when I was at CSC at the time and my boss told me, this is the most expensive MBA I've ever paid for. You know that, right? Your business failing. Uh, and, and so, lot, and, you know, that was a period where innovation was sort of a bit ahead of its time. So I think you can do that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I would, I would stop people, uh, you know, in the view, with the view that there might be too much innovation. You might want to talk about, think about timing maybe. Yeah. And what about 
localization or, or globally, um, who would you say as a country is the most innovative at the moment? Uh, I, I, um, you know, China, did, did, for example. Yeah, no, no, we, yeah, we did some work in the in the book actually, and it's usually around regions. It's usually a hub where mm. where different things come together, which creates an innovative environment. So China, you talked about uh, as one example, mm-hmm. you know, and people talk about Silicon Valley as another example. They've been and they've been trying to replicate that forever. Yeah. But actually, the reason Silicon Valley, or some of the reasons Silicon Valley is important, is because of the diversity in the place, the migration of skills, the universities, the networks, the culture of sharing stuff with one another, the ability of somebody failing and still being lauded as a hero. You know, there are all sorts of things happening in Silicon Valley that you can't, and people try to replicate it on the East Coast, they try to replicate it in South America, and it's very difficult to do. Uh, and, and so there is, um, you know, it, it's a, it depends is the answer, right, in terms of where, where you get innovation. But actually, you know, as an as a institution, as a government, you can create some of the environment for innovation. Um, but talent and culture and, you know, access to ideas and universities, um, all of those things are critical to wherever you might end up doing that. So how do you think technology enables innovation and what technology is going to help drive the next wave and what's going to offer the next big opportunity for innovation? Actually, I don't think it's the next big tech, actually. It's one of these things where, you know, generally you've got, you talk about a bit of technology and then you move on to the next technology, but you've not really exploited that technology. And I think we're at a stage where we are way off exploiting the the idea that data is available about everything that we can do. And so there's this this Internet of Things idea, the fact that everything is capturing data and it's really cheap to hold the data. But secondly, we've now got computing power to make sense of that data. And I think if you put both the two of those together, I think you end up with all sorts of predictive insight that will create all sorts of new opportunities. And I think that is the next big opportunity for businesses to think about the idea that you can get data about absolutely everything and anyone, Mm. and you've got the computing power to do whatever you want with quantum computing coming down the road. What are you going to do with that? Uh, For me, that's the most exciting thing right now. I just wanted to add to that, actually. Um, And it's not about technology as such, but it's the concept of what Ishmael talks about. And and if we talk about what drives growth, uh, we all know and love Tiffany Bova. She's spoken to Capita multiple times, and I've plagiarized (laughs) her (laughs) approach when she talks about growth because it's so true. And so now when I build my strategy for Capita or any client moving forward, it's very much growth equals CX plus E. Right. So Ishmael is right. The data is there. How do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of it from a CX perspective? So to your point of a a contact center agent or a brand ambassador working at Capita on O2, you know, how do they enhance that experience? But then how do Capita understanding that ambassador enhance their experience? And ultimately, that's all connected, which drives growth. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily look at it just tech. Actually, it's the formula of growth equals CX plus um, EX. 
Yeah, that's a great um, point, actually. And if I can just make a, a give an example of that, back in David Cameron's time, he created this team called the Behavioral Insights Team. Uh, and it was unofficially known as the Nudge Unit. And what they were doing was applying behavioral insight uh, and nudge theory and social engineering with technology to influence public and public thinking and decision making. And one of their great examples they talk about is uh, in the tax letters that we used to get, which says, have you paid your taxes? They, they just started including one line which says, by the way, your peer group has paid their taxes or most of your peer group has paid their taxes. So this is the EQ that uh, Shanir is talking about, mm. along with the data usage. And actually tax collection went up substantially for that peer group. There you go. There you go. Uh, and, you know, that's a great example, actually, of the sort of things that are really going to be very interesting and exciting because we've got access to data and all sorts of social, you know, uh, engineering techniques that we've never had access to before. Um, I can talk about this topic all day. I, I love innovation as a topic. Um, I like to try and think differently and and test the waters and, and see whether it it, uh, it takes. And you, if you don't try new things, you you, you will never know, really, yeah, will you? Exactly. And it doesn't um, require a huge budget to think a bit differently. Thank you, Ishmael, and thank you, Shanae. My name is Sarah Paul. I'm Corvin Dahari. This is Blazing Business Trails. Join us next time for our business services podcast brought to you by Salesforce.